All right, we're continuing our sermon series looking at the life of David. Looking at the life of David, and today we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And we're also going to spend some time in Psalm 51. So be aware of those two spots in your Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12, and then Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is where we want to spend most of our time today because it shows us on the grounds in which we can approach God. It's not based on anything that we do, or what we've accomplished, but on what God has done for us. And that's why this verse is key to this message, is key to our lives. We approach God because God has been gracious to us according to His steadfast love and His abundant compassion. And we see that in the face of Christ. That's why we worship Him. That's why we have our purpose and our being, to make much of God according to His steadfast love and abundant compassion. And when we realize that, our worship and our lives will be consumed with the glory of Christ. We have access to God because of His compassion and His love for us. You cannot earn it. You're given it. Through Jesus. Alright, let's pray and then we're going to dig into this because this is, you'll see David's life has been a roller coaster. Well, it takes a dive today. And a lot of times you hear about how uh, when David's facing Goliath, the world encourages you to be David. Well, when David encounters Bathsheba, you don't hear too many times about you being like David in that situation. And yet, it's a reflection of all of us. We are sinners in need of grace. So let's pray and then we'll do some work. Father, thank you for gathering us this morning. Lord, I pray that we see how gracious and compassionate of a God you are. And Lord, that's exactly who we need. And so, Father, I pray that you open up hearts and minds to help us see the glory that belongs to Christ. I pray that you help us see our sin and run to you. And Lord, we trust that you'll cleanse and heal us from our brokenness. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One of my favorite movie series, sports movies of all time, are the Rocky series. Rocky 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Rocky Balboa, Creed 1 and 2. I like them all. And if you remember Rocky, in Rocky chapter 4, who does he fight? That Russian. That Russian. Drago, right? He's bad news. He's bad news, and on the mountaintop, Rocky whoops Drago. But then he comes home in Rocky Five and finds out that all of his investments have gone south, and that he owes property tax on his mansion, loses his mansion, has to go back to the neighborhood when he was growing up in Philadelphia, and he's broke. Rocky Chapter Five is basically a repeat of Rocky Chapter One, Two, Three, and Four. It's a redemption story of how Rocky, when he loses it all, gets it back, sticks with his family, happy ending. It's a story of redemption. And it's interesting. I think we're hardwired to be a story of redemption. Did you know your life can also be a story of redemption? That's what we see in the Bible. And so we read in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
When you walk in those doors, understand there's no hierarchy of people in here. We are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. We have that in common. As a pastor, I'm a sinner who's fallen short of the glory of God. As a worshiper, we are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us deserve to be in the presence of God. We miss it. But the next verse, Romans 3.24, says we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you want a redemption story, it's found in Christ and no other. Your brokenness, your shame, your guilt can be nailed to the cross under the blood of Christ. Forgiven, healed, reconciled to God. That's a story of redemption for eternity. A story of redemption. In Romans 6.23 we see this. The wages of sin is death. It's what we earn. It's what we deserve. We've sinned. We miss the glory of God. We deserve death. Yet, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a redemption story. And I love that two times in verse 24 and then in 623, you have it's a gift. It's a gift. I was talking to a student this past week at our team time. I told you about our team time in the past. We have a tough team time made up of some girls that you don't want to mess with. Well, this one would be the baddest one in the class. She would whoop up most of the guys in our school. She's standing by the door. And I said, do you ever want to go to church on a Sunday? You know, you live right down the street from our church building. So I invited her to come. And she said, I don't wake up at 11 on Sundays. I go, if you can wake up by 7.30 to get to school Monday through Friday, you could come on a Sunday. And I said, one day you're going to wake up. And it's going to be about 10.30. And you're going to wonder, should I stroll down? I was like, yes. Make sure you come that day. She said, okay, okay. And then she goes, well, what's the reward if I come? Is there a reward? And I said, glad you asked. I said, you could have heaven. Forgiveness of sin, eternal life. And she's like, I'm not talking about that. And then I go sarcastic. like, oh, you would rather have a bag of chips than heaven. And she goes, not when you put it like that. <laughs> I love this. Stories of redemption. That's what we have. We deserve death and being separated from God. And yet in Christ, we have eternal life with God forever in heaven. That's an awesome story. That's an awesome story. And here... We get to David, and what you're going to see, as great a king and as great a life as David lived, he's in desperate need of a Savior. And David has a story of redemption. So let's get to work. Number one, sin is our greatest enemy. Sin is our greatest enemy. You may have come and thought, man, I'm struggling with this, this, and this, and this person is doing this, and my boss is doing this, and my neighbor's crazy and doing this. Your greatest enemy is not outside of you, it's inside of you, and it's called sin. And the Bible has a remedy for that, but before we get to the good news, we've got to talk about the bad news. And it starts here for David. It's interesting. A lion couldn't bring David down. Remember when he was a shepherd? Bear couldn't touch him. A giant who was a champion undefeated in battle was nothing but a sling and a stone away from death, and David whoops him. He's on the run from a king and an army, and they can't catch him. He unites a kingdom, overcomes a civil war. And then we read, listen to who David defeats. 
It's a laundry list. He defeats the Philistines, the Moabites, the king of Zobah with all of his chariots, the 20,000 Aramaeans, the Edomites, and the Ammonites. I think in chapter 8, verse 14 of 2 Samuel, I think it's put well. The Lord made David victorious wherever he went. David's going into battle. You want to be on David's side, but there was one enemy he didn't defeat. And we see it in chapter 11. And this is our introduction. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all of Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Do you see the problem? During the time when kings go out to battle, David was chilling out. It's an amazing thing when you let your guard down what will happen. You have an enemy seeking to steal, kill, and destroy you. And when you let your guard down, usually after a great victory, you understand he will come right for you. It's an amazing thing. David, victory after victory after victory, thinks, you know what? I can chill out now. And maybe that's where you are now. But during the time when kings go out to battle, David stayed home. We keep reading. It doesn't get better. Verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her. And he said, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, and wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, that's very, very important. There's this guy that's working with David, the king. David says, hey, go check. Go see if she's available. And the guy is trying to give David a warning. Hey, whoa, you're viewing her as an object that you're lusting after. And she has a dad and she has a husband and not just any husband. That's Uriah's wife. But David doesn't stop. He's the king. What he says, go. So he says, go and get her and tell her, come on over. They sleep together. Bathsheba goes back home and sends back word after some time has passed that she's pregnant. David hears the news and he's terrified. David here has a chance to stop sinning and running from God. But he thinks he can clean it up. He thinks he can cover it up. He thinks he can hide it. And many of us do the same thing. So he says, you know what? I've got a couple ideas in mind. Go get Uriah. Uriah is on the front lines with Joab fighting a battle. Uriah is a bad dude. And by bad, I mean he's one of the best soldiers David has. Later on in 2 Samuel, towards the end of the book, there's a list of 37 men that are called David's men. And they're mighty in battle. There's a reason why David won every battle. He has some dudes in his army. It would be Navy SEALs on steroids. And guess who was number 37 in the list? Uriah the Hittite. So David says, hey, go send word. I need him back from the battlefield. i got to talk to him. Uriah comes to the palace. They have a conversation. How's the battle going? Good. We're doing this, this. We're moving here. It looks like it's just a few more, a couple weeks, and we'll have this whole city under our control. And David's like, great. Let's go celebrate. You go home. Have a feast with your family. Enjoy your wife. David sends him out. Now, David thinks, good, I've got this covered up. 
Nobody will ever know what I did. Except Uriah is one heck of a soldier. He sleeps on the palace porch. Doesn't go home. David gets word about this the next morning. He calls Uriah back in. He's like, Uriah, what are you doing? I sent you home. He goes, David, the men that I serve with are out sleeping in tents in battle. They're not having a feast. They're not enjoying their wives. They can't be home with their families. I'm not going. So David misses. Well, he's like, well, we'll try this again. So he invites Uriah in and he gets him drunk. But even in his drunken stupor, Uriah doesn't go home. He sleeps on the porch. Second night. So David calls him in and now he's, now he's getting desperate. That's strike two. He won't strike out. And he has this idea. You know what? I'll send a letter to my commander, Joab, and we'll take care of Uriah. If you want to do what I say, we'll take care of him. He writes a letter to Joab. Joab, put Uriah on the front lines where the battle was the fierce. So send him up there. And when the fighting is raging on, retreat, leave Uriah up there. He writes this down, gives it to Joab, and Joab or gives it to Uriah, and Uriah delivers this. Can you imagine the sin David is committing? Here's a man that is laying his life down for you and your kingdom, and you're giving him a life sentence, and he's delivering the message to the commander. And Joab gets this. And Joab puts Uriah on the front lines where the fiercest fighting is happening, and they get up close to this wall, and they're getting arrows shot down and stuff thrown on them. And it says, I, I, I want to read this one to you. When Joab was besieging the city, this is verse 16 of chapter 11. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Verse 17, then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab. And some of the men from David's soldiers, some of his mighty men, he, he takes a loss here. He loses this battle. They eventually win this war, but he loses this battle. Some of David's soldiers fell in battle and Uriah the Hittite also died. And David thinks, you know what? I've got this under control now. My plan worked. And for a little while it did. For a little while he was able to cover it up. Do you see how far sin took David? I had a pastor growing up. He always had a saying. He said, sin will keep you longer than you want to stay, take you further than you want to go, and cost you more than you want to pay. And that's a true statement. And so you might have sin in your life right now that you think, you know what, I'm in control, it's not that big a deal. Sin doesn't stop. Sin is relentless in consuming your life. And what starts out as a little flicker bursts into a raging fire and won't stop until it costs you your life. The wages of sin is death, and that's not an exaggeration. That is the truth. Sin will destroy relationships. Sin is destroying families. Sin is destroying individuals. Sin is your greatest enemy. And David found that out. A couple of verses I want to share with you about what do we do with that sin. So what do we do? If sin is our greatest enemy, what do we do? 
right? If it's another guy, maybe I'll learn how to fight. If it's something at work, maybe I'll learn how to counter. What do you, what do, you do with sin in your life? A couple of things. Number one, 2 Timothy 2.21. If you're taking notes, write that passage down, 2 Timothy 2.21. Says so if anyone purifies himself for anything that is dishonorable, he will be a special instrument, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. All right, 2 Timothy 2.21. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21. If anyone purifies himself, and I think this is a great what you should be asking is how do I purify myself? You don't. Remember, we go to God. We rely on his steadfast love and his abundant compassion. And Jesus, His sacrifice on the cross, cleanses us. As we confess our sin to Him, we are cleansed from our unrighteousness. That's how you clean yourself up. You run to Jesus. When we do that, we will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. If you want to be useful to God, it will be when you kill sin in your life. You cannot follow Jesus and rebel against the king. Many people are living miserable lives because they're tolerating sin in their lives. Kill it. Run from it. Throw it off. Then watch what God does with your life. David is on a balcony and God had called him to be at war. God has given you a mission. And it does not include sin. There's another passage, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It says, Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. You cannot run when you're shackled by sin. You've got to throw it off. And then you run with endurance. Did you catch how? By keeping your eyes on who? On Jesus. When you're looking at Jesus, sin looks awful. When you get your gaze off of Christ, sin looks appetizing. It's an amazing thing. You know why casinos have bright lights? Big buildings? Man, they win money all the time. Did you know the casinos in Vegas make billions of dollars every year? It's not by accident. They get people to come into the doors. I just want you to hear some of their strategies. Some of their strategies to keep people in the casino. Number one, you play with chips and not money. It's easy to throw a chip in when it's not a dollar bill. Number two, there's no clocks in sight. Number three, they restrict your view. There's not too many windows in a casino. They don't want you to remember what's outside. Number four, free alcohol. Number five, the floor. Did you know it's ugly, the carpet? So when you lose, you can't keep your eyes down. You keep your eyes up. And there's another gambling station after another gambling station. Next, they have big celebrations for rare victories. The ding, 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 the coins hitting. You're like, oh, everybody's winning it. Nope. Nope. They place their bathroom strategically. They put it deep within the casino. So you go to the bathroom, you finally get a chance to think, and on your way out, there's this machine and this table. It's not by accident. 
They give extra oxygen so you stay awake. They have bright lights. There's always a close ATM. There's near misses. There's ugly carpets. Cash out desk is hard to find. There's a reason why casinos are big and people are broke when they go to gamble. And the same is true with sin. Satan will keep your eyes looking at everything but God. But if you get your eyes on Jesus, throwing off the sin, you'll run with endurance. And people, we're called to run with endurance. So let's help each other do that. Let's help each other throw off the sin that's ensnaring us, that's entangling us. Let's get our eyes on Jesus and let us run with endurance. The race is marked out for each of us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Number two, sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. David thinks he hasn't made. Right? Uriah's dead. Bathsheba is now his wife. They have the baby. All is good. And some time has passed. It's been about a year. And David's thinking, ah, I'm doing all right. Maybe nobody noticed. Have you ever done that? Maybe you've tripped and fallen and you're like, oh, please tell me nobody was around to see that. David fell on his face, adultery and murder, and he's thinking, ah, okay, I'm good. Here's the problem. God knew. And we see this last verse of chapter 11, verse 27. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. You serve a God that you can't hide from. Your sin's never hidden. We never get away with it. God sees everything and will hold us accountable for our sin, which is why we need a Savior. Sin has consequences. And we see this. Here comes Nathan. And I love Nathan. We are in desperate need of Nathans in our lives. Someone that will call you out. Hey, man, you're doing this. You need to stop. You need to turn back from that. You need to confess that. You need to get back to God. I love Nathan's. It's very difficult when Nathan comes to you, though. When Nathan comes to speak about me and how I've been this or that or this, and I need to turn from it. But we desperately need Nathan's. Nathan comes up and says, hey, man, there's this man out here. He has one lamb. It's a special lamb to him. He takes care of it, nurses it like it's a baby, has it sleep in its own room with him. Like It's a special lamb. This guy doesn't have much, but he does have this one little lamb. But his neighbor, wealthy dude, has a bunch of sheep. Well, this neighbor, this wealthy guy had a party, and this friend came in, this visitor, and he said, let's go kill a calf and have a feast. They wanted lamb chops, but instead of taking one of his millions of sheep, he goes to his neighbor who had the one and took it and killed it. And Nathan goes, David, what should we do? He goes, that guy deserves to die. Bring him here. He's going to restore what he took. And then Nathan goes, you are that man. And Nathan goes on to say, hey, this is what God's going to do. There's consequences for this sin. But then he gets to the good news. Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. And then Nathan goes home. Nathan explains some of the consequences to David. How the sword will never depart from his family. You're like, what's that talking about? Violence from here on out is always happening in David's family. He loses two sons. One of his sons tries to take over the kingdom. David goes on the run again, running from his son who's taken over his kingdom. And then to get the kingdom back, he has a battle with Absalom, and in that battle, Absalom's killed. <coughs> David has already lost Uriah, one of his famous fighting men. 
David has destroyed two families. And the consequences just keep stacking up for David. Now here's my question. Do you think when David is on the balcony looking at this beautiful woman, do you think he can see past her and see the consequences? I don't. And I think that's always why sin looks very, very appeasing. Think about this. Adam and Eve in the garden, hundreds and hundreds of trees around. There's one that God says don't go eat from. And yet that's what they set their gaze on. And the Bible says that when they see it and it looks good for food, they take it and they eat. Do you think they had the consequences in view? That they'd be kicked out of the garden, separated from God, death would enter the picture? I don't. Samson, when he's having a blast with Delilah, doing exactly what God told him not to do. Do you think he looked past the good times hanging out with Delilah to see what would happen? That he'd be shackled in chains, paraded among the enemies, eyes gouged out. Do you think he saw the consequences of sin? I don't. You want to know why I know that? Because the same can be said of me and the same can be said of you. When you're tempted to sin, it's an amazing thing how the consequences are always hidden. <coughs> sin looks good. Consequences are coming. So I want us to see that. I want us to see that the consequences are not escapable, even though forgiveness is available. Because here's, the, here's something important. I think sometimes when we teach grace, we're like, well, I'll just do whatever I want to. I'll ask God to forgive me and I'll be fine. But that's not what we see in the Bible. And Paul calls that cheap grace. He's like, so grace about so I just keep sinning, so grace will abound more. He's like, you fool. When you experience the grace of God, his love and compassion, man, it motivates us to walk with God, not rebel against God. What I want us to see with the consequences is I think some of us right now are on a balcony. And we're considering taking another step going after some sin in our life. And I don't know what it could be. It might be pornography. It might be an inappropriate relationship. It might be a wrong decision at work. It, with this many people, with so many different varieties, I don't know what it is, but you could be standing on a balcony and you're thinking, man, if I just did that, life is good. Consider the consequences. And this is what I would do. This is what I've done, and it's helped me. Ask God to show you what this decision, what pursuing this leads to. And it's an amazing thing when you get your eyes on Jesus, how sin fades to the background. Get off the balcony. Go fight battles. Sin has consequences. But then finally, grace is greater than all our sin. Go to Psalm 51. Go to Psalm 51. Grace is greater than all of our sin. I just want you to see this. I want to read the first few verses. And I want you to see what David is asking for. Because here, David is a man after God's own heart. And look at how a man after God's own heart falls on his face. Right here, this is what we learn about God. How do we approach God after we've blown it? This is very important. Because all of us have blown it. And this is how you go to God. You don't run from God after you make a mistake. After you sin. After you rebel against God. You don't keep running. You stop running and you go to God and you lean in to His love and His compassion. And that's where you see and experience grace. That's where healing of brokenness happens. You can't fix it yourself. But Jesus can. Psalm 51, verse 1. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. 
completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass the sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in my inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with this and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. This is exactly what we read in the New Testament. Throw off sin, then you'll be used by God. Verse 14, save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of, our, of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, O God. Are you broken over the sin in your life? Brokenness, conviction over sin drives us to Jesus. And when we're driven to Christ, we're made new. You guys know that David was before Jesus, right? Next week, we're making our march towards Christmas. We're going through the genealogy. And Jesus comes through the line of David, but he hasn't arrived yet. But do you see what David asked for here? Be gracious to me. Right? God, don't treat me the way I should be treated. Don't give me what my actions deserve. Be gracious to me. Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin. Purify me and I'll be clean. Wash me. Turn your face away from my sin. Blot out my guilt. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore the joy. Sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Save me, God, of my salvation. You see how all 13 of those things that he asked for are rooted in nothing David accomplished. They are rooted in what we see in verse 1 of chapter 51. God's compassion and God's love. Now, my question, where do we see the biggest, greatest example of that? On the cross. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 1, we see that he's to be given the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. For as good a king as David was, he was in desperate need of a Savior. And that's exactly who God sends. His one and only Son. And so, the question demands this. What are you relying on to clean you from your sin? The guilt, the shame, the brokenness. What's going to clean up that mess? We're in Holmes High School and I was absent today. And the worst part when you're absent, you never know who's doing what. And we had a student find a permanent red marker. And our team time was in a great location, the Hartman Room, if, 
if you're at Holmes, the Hartman room's great because it's like a conference room. It's the nicest room at Holmes. And we're in there, and I'm thinking, man, we're living large. But I'm absent. I come back in the next day, and on the front table are things that should not be on a table. Now, the artistic ability of the student was pretty good. The problem is what he was drawing. I'm not going to go into the details, the language that was used on the table. I just knew I had a problem. Well, that Wednesday was a focus visit from the Covington School Board. And guess where they were meeting? The Hartman Room. And I'm thinking, I've got a problem. They're going to ask, who uses this room? So I go to Mr. Mitchell, our head custodian, and he goes, hey, Brown, all you need is this. He gives me this bottle. I don't know what was in it. And he gives me a magic eraser. And he goes, let me know if this works. And I'm thinking, this is not going to work. Nice wooden table, whatever this spray is, and a magic eraser. I've tried magic erasers. They don't work. That's my thought. But I'm desperate. I go, I spray this on, and I take one swipe with this magic eraser, and I'm telling you, the art was gone. I do the whole table. I dry it off. I look, because I know there's going to be, there's got to be at least a dent. Like, what's wrong? It's gone. That's exactly what Jesus does. One day you'll stand before God, and you'll give an account for your life. And I don't know about you, but there's some things in my life that, man, it's just shameful. It's embarrassing. Don't want anybody to see it. Don't want anybody to bring it up. And God, who sees everything, knows everything. But you want to know what we're promised? Just like you can't see that drawing on that table because of that magic eraser, Jesus, when he lays his life down, takes it and says, your sin is covered. It is gone. As a matter of fact, it's even better than that. Cast it away as far as the east is from the west. Can't get any further away from that. God doesn't bring that. You want to know what God sees when he sees me? Not my sin. That was paid for on the cross. You want to know what he sees? The righteousness of his son, Jesus. It doesn't get any cleaner than that. That is perfection. That's what we have in Christ. There's a couple of hymns that you may not know, you, you may know. One hymn goes like this. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, yes I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, there I plead, nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. One other hymn goes like this. Marvelous grace of our loving God, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace that is greater than all my sin. So, what do we do? 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins... He, being Jesus, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so now I think it's a time of response. I think it's a time of response. I wrote down four things, and, and some of these overlap. But I do know this. I don't want you to leave wallowing in self-pity or guilt or shame. When Jesus lays his life down, sheds his blood so you might be forgiven. 
that you can be made new. That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I think Satan gets you to focus on your sin and how bad of a person you are, and yet God's grace can cover it. Maybe that's why we have the example of David, a murderer and an adulterer. And God says, I can make you whiter than snow. I can clean you up. I can wash you off. Your sin is covered. So number one, you might be on the balcony right now. And you're looking and you're considering jumping into some sin. My encouragement to you is turn from it, run from it, throw it off. Get another brother or get another sister in your life that you can have an honest conversation with that can hold you accountable. It's never worth it. Sin never delivers what it's promising you. It will always leave you broken, hurting, and unsatisfied. Number two, maybe you know Jesus, but it's been a long time since you've been running with Christ. You're struggling with sin right now, but you're done with it. Today's a good day to confess that to God, turn from it, throw it off, and run the race He's marked out for you with endurance. And you've got people here that would love, love to run with you. But maybe you're here and you've never tasted the grace of God. And you are embarrassed and you are filled with shame. Well, you can make the decision to confess your sin to God because He hears you when you pray. And you can ask Jesus to save you. And He does. I can tell you that because I stand as a man that was in desperate need of a Savior. And Jesus did just that. And if you want that to be your story, you too will have a story of redemption. So when I pray, you guys pray. And whatever God is working and laying on your heart, do work with God. And then share that with somebody. Tell what God's doing in your life. We serve an awesome, loving, compassionate God. He's not embarrassed by your sin. He knows it. And He did something about it. And that's why our hope is in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Most importantly, thank You for Your Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Father, we're broken, hurting people, and yet you give us hope and eternal life because of what Christ has done for us. So I pray that we are a people that are continually confessing our sin to you, turning from it, throwing it off, running from it, and pursuing you. Lord, I pray that we run with endurance the race you've marked out for us. I pray that you give hope to the hopeless here. I pray that you heal the hurting in the room. Pray that you help us realize that our sin will not define who we are, but your grace will. And then it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.